0: Now, from
1: the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You mentioned the Koch brothers in some of the rooms I walk into, and you get met with gritted teeth. But on one issue, criminal justice reform, the Koch brothers are fighting side by side with the left, the ACLU, and others, uh, to try and change some of the uh, draconian laws that were put in place to fight drugs and crime that have only crowded our prisons and not solved the problem and uh, i had a chance to sit down with mark holden who is an attorney for coke industries but has made criminal justice reform his mission From 1980 to 2008, the number of people incarcerated in America quadrupled from roughly 500,000 to 2.3 million people, one in every 31 adults. That's 3.2% of the population is under some form of correctional control in America. The U.S. is 5% of the world's population, and we have 25% of the world's uh, prisoners, and there's, of course, great disparities between African Americans and Hispanics and and, and white Americans. Uh, African Americans incarcerated at nearly six times the rate of whites. African Americans and Hispanics comprised 58% of all prisoners in 2008, uh, even though African Americans and Hispanics made up approximately a quarter of the U.S. population. I raise all these statistics because my guest uh, today has made this his... Uh, his mission to deal with this issue of over-incarceration, and uh, he comes from what some will consider an unlikely source. Uh, Mark Holden is uh, lead attorney for the for Coke Industries. Um, has been there for twenty years, um, but is mostly detailed to this mission now of trying to bring about criminal justice reform. Mark, it's really good to be with you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, David. I. Um, I'm curious as to how you became interested uh, in this issue. We can talk later about how the, the Koch brothers became interested sure. and Charles Koch became interested yes. in this issue. But I'm really interested in you and yeah. your story. Uh, tell me, tell me how you became acquainted with this problem, this this challenge, this.
0: Yeah. Well, <clears throat> it all started in Worcester, Massachusetts. As any good story does, I think we could all agree. If you're from Worcester. If you're from Worcester, yeah. yeah. And you get out. I'm kidding. Um, but I grew up in Worcester, Mass. My mom still lives there. And um, um, when I was in college, the best job I had before I went to law school, I was a correctional officer at the Worcester County House of Correction.
1: How does one get a job at the Worcester <clears throat> County you House You need to
0: live across the street from Francis X. Degnan, who was the sheriff of Worcester County. Ah, and uh, As it, a Chicagoan, I can appreciate yeah, this Yeah, Worcester didn't have a lot of patronage, but I, 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 <laughs> I benefited from what little there was, I guess, but... So Mr. Degnan, who was a great guy, lived across the street from us forever, where I grew up. And <clears throat> summer and winter, they had a need for excess guards for whatever reasons. Um, and I was able to fill in for a couple of years when I was in college. And so that's how I started working there. And as I said, it was, it was the most money I made. I think I made like six bucks an hour back then. And it was just very interesting. It stuck with me till this day. What was interesting about that? What did you you learn?
1: What what surprised you when you got there?
0: Well, what surprised me was there were a bunch of kids that I lost track of in middle school who were in prison. Um, Same school, same neighborhood, same churches, same everything, and then they were in prison. And for me, it was similar to what the president said down at El Reno when he was there, there before the grace of God go I. And really, the only difference that I can tell to this day, and I've thought about it a lot over the last several years, particularly this past year, when we've been working on these issues so much, that if I didn't have strong parents and strong family structure, it probably could have been me or very easily could have been me. And so for me, that was what Brian Stevenson, who I'm sure you know, uh, from the Equal Justice Initiative calls proximity. And so I was proximate to it from a young age, from the time I was 18, 19, 20 years old. And what it taught me was, is that this was at the beginning of the drug wars, and people were getting hooked on drugs and, you know, getting into is the Is that what cycle. most of them were there for, most of your they, friends? They, well, they all start out there. It's like <laughs> they, they, they were poor. They got caught with drugs. Some of them were in juvenile. And then they, they graduated to adult, and it was all originally based on drugs. And then over time, it turned into more either petty and then more serious crime to feed their drug habits. And then some of them, one guy actually is serving life for murder. He was a bad dude, but— it taught me early on, a lot of the things, or I saw firsthand again, it's um, it's a situation that if you don't have the ways and means, and you don't have family support, you're going to get, you can get tripped up in it. And once you get tripped up in our system, it's very difficult to get out of, whether you're rich or poor. If you're rich, you're probably going to be okay. You'll be able to get access to the best lawyers and that type of thing, and the best handling of your case, you'll probably get a break. But if you're poor... And you make a mistake, it's a brutal system, and you're probably going to get run over, and it can ruin your life forever. So for me, from an early age, I saw that. And it stuck with me. And it's a system that really, if you look at it, these were kids that probably, you know, you can't, we can legislate a lot of things. Let you just were these all white kids? They were all poor white kids, that's Mm -hmm. the thing. There was a couple of my friends who were black, but it was, by and large, poor white kids, because that's what what was made up of, and we were working class, but... The key was, for me, again, my parents would not let me stray. And I tried, and they'd kick my butt. If you don't have that support, you get caught up in the system, you get run over. And the problem, I think, is still today that we're treating people who maybe have a drug problem or need a job or maybe just need some positive reinforcement in life, someone to care about them, not to be touchy-feely, but that is very important. We treat them like criminals. We don't differentiate And we put them in prison. We've been doing it now for 30-something years, and it's not working. That's what I think the nub of a lot of the problems are, particularly in the federal system. And I do think that it's the whole thing. We're treating people that we're mad at, like people we're afraid of. And then you you combine that with some of the changes that came after the 80s, ending all the Pell Grants, ending all the education in prison. So all you're doing is warehousing people, and they become better criminals. I mean, that that is the problem. And so it's a cycle that's been created that we've created in the name of being tougher on crime and it's really not working. And we're seeing a reaction to that now. So for me, like I said, from an early age, I was never, I never bought into the Willie Horton stuff. I mean, when the the prison I worked at, there were some bad dudes, but most of them was more just sad, poor people who couldn't get out of it and got hooked on drugs. I'm not saying they, they, they made mistakes, but if they had, you know, again, if they had been born to a different person in a different neighborhood, things would have been different. And I don't think in this country what we should be all about, a free society with the bill of rights and everything should be in favor of the individual against the government when they're coming to take your life, liberty, and property. And the government should use the least amount of force possible to ensure compliance. And we're not. We're just overrunning people. And it's got these devastating impacts. You mentioned a couple of them there about the number of people with criminal records. One that always strikes at me is the number, the amount of money we spend, right? $250 billion a year, beginning to end on a criminal justice system. $80 billion a year on incarcerating people who probably don't need to be in prison and don't need to be there that long, um, that's three to four times more per capita than we spend on education. Then you look at the the, the human costs, which we probably incalculable, but just look at the numbers. One in 28 children in this country have a parent in prison. If it's African-American, it's one in nine. A lot of those kids, they were under 10 years old, at least half of them, when their parents went away. And is it surprising they have their own issues? So for me, there's the race issue you mentioned, which is undeniable. I'm not going to defend that, but it's really for me at the end of the day, what I saw. It's about poverty and poor people in a system that I don't think it's intentional, but it's brutal if you don't have resources. Let, and I, let me unpack a few things. Yeah,
1: you you, uh, you talk you you put it in the context of our, of, of personal freedom and yes, uh, the I assume that this is where um, uh, the the Koch uh, brothers and Charles, Charles Koch, Koch has yeah, have Koch, uh, right? have uh, really embraced this issue as a as a kind of personal freedom yeah. liber- libertarian issue.
0: Yeah, really, it's what Charles and, Charles and David, and Charles in particular, uh, it's really we, we look at the moral, the constitutional, and the fiscal aspects of it. That's how we look at it from Charles's perspective. Primarily, it's helping people improve their lives and removing. Barriers and obstacles to opportunity, particularly for the least advantaged. Did you bring this issue to him? No. Well, Charles has had these beliefs his whole life. Uh, What happened at the company was uh, we had— Because you
1: were doing like regulatory stuff and all the stuff that a corporate corporate, uh,
0: lawyer would do. So what happened was we started uh, 20 years ago. Uh, I started with a company, and I started out doing labor and employment litigation. And uh, one of the first cases I had involved— Some issues at a refinery in Texas and some employment issues with some employees, well, obviously with employees. And it kind of mushroomed that case, that situation kind of got drawn up in a bigger uh, issue around regulatory compliance. And there ended up four of our employees were indicted. They were indicted for alleged violations of the Clean Air Act and also for violations of false statements, conspiracy, all these other things. So, four employees who are all nonviolent alleged first-time offenders that were facing anywhere from five to 40 years in prison. And it was an issue of noncompliance that they had discovered, they had corrected, they had disciplined the people who created it, reported it to the state. It was all documented by the state. And then it it was a perfect storm. A number of different things happened, and the indictments came out. Uh, Five, six years later, we were able to get the case dismissed as to them. They were exonerated because they hadn't done anything wrong. They hadn't been perfect, but Thank God, being perfect, not being perfect isn't a crime in this country. So the charges against them went away, and we pled guilty to the original false statement that we had found and self-disclosed. After that got done, what the way Charles looks at the world, what did we do? What did we bring to the table there that we can correct? And so we looked at the way we handle compliance issues, the way we did investigations, make sure we had the right independence between the people who investigated and who were involved in the day-to-day, all those things. We looked at our compliance programs. And then we also looked at our, our relationships with regulators, trying to have a better discussion with them. You don't want to be always going to a regulator when you have an issue. You want to be talking to them all the time. And then the next step was outwardly. What on the system, what in the system did we see that didn't work the way we thought it would work? What did we think it was just? Because we got handled, we thought, pretty shabbily. There was doctored evidence in the grand jury, uh, overreach by the prosecutors, selective use of these laws with vague, intent standards. And so we were tasked, I was tasked to, with others, to look at ways we could improve that. And we started working with the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and Heritage. It was from the beginning a left-right coalition. And we started out looking at first, it was, the you have to, and from our, my perspective, our, our point of view is it's a holistic system, our criminal justice system. You start with the laws that are in place. What have we decided that is that serious a matter that we're going to make a criminal and we can take people's life, liberty, and property away. You need to also look at the grand jury process, how cases are charged, the power that prosecutors have, which is way too much in my opinion. You also need to look at how trials work, particularly for poor people. Uh, we're, we're working with the NACDL on indigent defense programs. You also need to look at sentencing and prison reform, and then you need to look at reentry issues. How do people get treated, ex-offenders, when they get out of prison? Because a lot of times they can't get jobs, they can't get loans, they can't live with their hosts, uh, with their families all those things. So we we started back in 2003. Once we got involved, you can't stop once you start working on it, because everything you see, it's, it doesn't seem just, it doesn't seem right. So you spend most of your time on this now? Well, no, this past year I have. It's been interesting. A, a lot of my colleagues spend time on it more than me. Um, but this past year I have, and it's because, really, it's what Charles would call spontaneous order, I think. Uh, and what I mean by that is, we were pulled into this fight by people on the left. You know, we've worked, now with the, we've worked with the ACLU before, but much more closely with the ACLU, with Van Jones and Shaka Senghor who's going to be here tonight. At, uh, here from, at the Institute of Politics. Here at the Institute of yes. Polics, Politics, excuse me, um, and um, uh, Cut50, that organization, the Center for American Progress, People knew we were passionate about this issue and knew we had credibility around it. We weren't just trying to fix the thic- issue. Well, I also finish. knew
1: you have uh, a, a great deal of, of influence well, that with, was the thing. So, on the Republican side. Well, of what that happened
0: thing. was, exactly what happened was, about this time last year, we announced a new program with the uh, NACDL, Studying Indigent Defense Programs. A- and f-
1: Explain what the NACDL I'm
0: sorry. The National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. It's an organization, like its name says, of practicing criminal defense lawyers, and it's The best of the best of the criminal bar. And um, they go far left, far right, anarchists, whatever. But they are the people you want if the government's trying to take your life, liberty, or property away. A good friend of mine named Norman Reamer runs the NACDL. We announced that we were going to give grants to the NACDL for an indigent defense study program because the Sixth Amendment obviously guarantees the right to counsel. And Gideon versus Wainwright says the state, if you can't afford a lawyer, one must be provided for you by the state. But it's an empty promise because of the lack of funding in these different programs. Let me stop
1: you for a second yes, because sir. people uh, would say, uh, speak to the paradoxical point here, which is that uh, the 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 uh, the Koch
0: brothers and Charles and David. There's four of them, so I just call them Charles and David. Okay,
1: and the, the and Americans for Prosperity, their 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 sort of political arm, been very influential in uh, electing. Uh, uh, Primarily Republican candidates who are very interested in, in cutting budgets, uh, and that's resulted at both the state and the federal level in significant cuts. Uh, were those cuts wise as it relates to public defenders and some of the other supports that are necessary to make good on that promise?
0: Of the which promise I'm on the sorry.
1: promise of, to uh, on the, the constitutional promise well, no well to, I mean adequate defense
0: and uh, look the, what AFP does it, it's a separate organization we do have ties to it but. Um, the Sixth Amendment issues have preexisted all of this. It's it's been an empty program. I understand, for, but you 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 mentioned lack of funding. Yeah, so it's, been, it's not been funded for a long time, so it's not just because of any. I'm not. Uh, cuts. Let's le- le- leave us. but, you, but yeah. you acknowledge that there's a need there. There's a need. There's a need for a lot of things. There is a need for funding of those programs, which is why when we talk about the moral, constitutional, and the fiscal case, the fiscal case is the moral case in a lot of ways because the eighty billion, two hundred fifty billion we're spending. On our criminal justice system and the 80 billion on incarceration, um, if we could make sure we had the right people in prison and let a lot of people not enter prison, keep them out to begin with, and then have shorter sentences, we could save money to spend it on other things. So you think reform is self-financing? Well, I don't know what the answer is actually, and I have a. This is just me. I have a, in some ways, a fundamental problem with the idea that the government, who is literally taking away my life, liberty, and property, trying to do that on the one hand is going to also fund my lawyer and then isn't doing it and then they're going to put me away anyway. So I think there's an inherent conflict of interest. That's one of the things we're looking at with the NACDL. We're looking at state programs that do work and don't work and what the best practices are and then go from there. And we don't know what the path forward will be, but I think in a lot of these things David, you know, you've seen the left and the right come together. You mentioned that we got pulled in because we could be influential. That was my point about the spontaneous order when the Senate flipped People started to from, realize from Democrat to Republican. From Democrat to Republican last fall, around that time, we'd announced that program we were doing with the NACDL on the Sixth Amendment, and I have a, a, a someone I've worked with at the New York Times who had interviewed us before and was interested in criminal justice reform. A guy named Carl Hulse, and no, Carl,
1: well, he's an old uh, Illinoisan.
0: Yeah, he went well. He's a Missouri Valley guy, and so am I in Wichita State. He went to Illinois State, so. He wanted to write about something, so we told him, hey, this is coming out. Are you interested? He wrote a blurb about it last October, and it was one of those things. We didn't think anything of it, and then the Daily Beast picked up something, the Huffington Post, Yahoo. It kind of built and built, and then there was an article in the, in the uh, Wichita paper, then Politico, Charles and I did an op-ed. And what happened was the Republicans, in the, the Republicans controlled the Senate and the House, uh, there were a lot of bills pending, and I think our friends on the left said, this is an issue we all care about deeply. It's one we can actually agree on. Let's get something done. And we got pulled into it, and we've been happy to do it. It's been great, and, you know, it would be great actually to work on something besides this, more than this after hopefully we get some success at the federal level with criminal justice reform. Because we're what really, do
1: you, how do you rate the chances of getting something done?
0: I think they're really good. I mean, right now the Senate has a bill. It's gone through the Senate Judiciary fifteen five. And they're going to get it on the floor soon, we think. Hopefully, now that it looks like the budget deal has been resolved, the budget issues have been resolved, it looks like there'll be time this year for that. And I've heard the House of Representatives... And just to
1: outline very briefly what what that would do. Well,
0: yeah, the Senate bill, it's it's called the uh, Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act. And it is truly bipartisan. So you have Grassley and Cornyn, and you have uh, Leahy, Durbin, White House... Senator Booker's on board, um, Mike Lee, etc., and the bill would give judges discretion, increase the safety valve, as they call it, for low-level drug offenders, street level and lower. So judges would have the discretion not to send them to prison if they chose. This essentially
1: reverses some of the impact of the. Crime Bill of '94 and sure. some of the other legislation yeah, that, that was way, supposed yeah. to deal with the crime issue. Just parenthetically, when you back in the day yeah. when the crime bill was being passed, did you have reservations about that about determinate sentencing and these long
0: mandatory sentences? Personally, I do. I mean, I. I but I be- did you back then? Did I personally have them? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't a coke when that. got No, passed. I'm not. I'm just no, no, asking no, you. As yeah, a, as yeah a no. Lawyer. Let me tell you my point of view. Yeah. I think that I believe in the Bill of Rights. I believe in the Constitution. And I think that we should let judges do their jobs. And yeah, there was a violent crime wave, but there's a way to deal with it without giving prosecutors all the power. Do you think the drug laws
1: in general are flawed? Yes. I mean, what what should we do about about them?
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, should
1: we should there be should they be legalized? Should they what 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 I, should we do?
0: I think that this is what I was going to say when I was talking about we all came together. It'd be great to work on other issues besides this. I think that. What's happening now is the criminal justice system is the way station. where it, It's where we put everything that's failed before it. We don't have good schools. We don't have opportunity. There's no jobs, that type of thing, right? There's been breakdowns in these communities, and we haven't dealt with any of that. And instead of dealing with it, now we have police in the school. We have you know more, 10 times the number of mentally ill people. In prison than there are in mental institutions. I think we need to deal with a whole lot of things. And to me, the drug the drug laws they don't make sense for a lot of different reasons. I'm not saying legalize everything. I'm not saying. I'm not saying. I think heroin's a good thing. It isn't. But here's my point of view. In fact, there's a scourge in, our, a, scourge. in a lot of our communities, and a lot of it, right it has now. to do with you know it, addiction's a serious. It's a serious illness, disease, and there's also the lack of opportunity and all these other things. They become criminals because of it. We probably need to think about better things, better ideas, than just putting people in prison for long times. Now, it's different if it's a drug cartel leader, which will still happen under the new bill. The new bill, the Senate, the Senate bill, deals with low-level offenders. Um, but one thing in particular, I think, we uh, we prosecute cases based on the weight of drugs. So, you know, you, you, you like there's a kid in Texas a couple of years ago or recently that had uh, made a batch of... Uh, hashish brownies and it was like he was facing 60 years in prison because it was a whole thing of brownies so it's it's the quantity how much it weighs total it isn't necessarily the amount of you know what your intent is or anything else and so people who are low-level mules who are addicted to do certain things get prosecuted as heavily and you've uh, had these disparities crack cocaine and powder cocaine that really have
1: ended up as a kind of racial disparity because the inner city kid is more likely to be smoking crack the 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 the, the stockbroker in the suburbs maybe right not to impugn stockbrokers but
0: I'm not one so you can impugn okay if you good want. let's do it then yeah.
1: uh, the uh but uh, the so th- presumably this this bill will help it's, eradicate some well, of well I
0: think what's what it's going to do is we're, we're it's been going one way for a really long time a real long time it's been going one way okay so we've had just lock them up throw away the key which has been a bipartisan effort between Reagan, Bush, and then Clinton, Biden, Hillary Clinton was on board. All of them were. So now this stops that for a little bit, uh, and hopefully we can build on it, but it will let judges do their jobs with low-level offenders. And the hope is that low-level offenders will then be out of the system, won't go into the system to begin with or get a second chance or get rehab or get something else, and they can have a positive path through life. So you're going to stop the inflow. People who are already in prison— What it will do for them, the corrections reform part of it, you can get earned time credits for doing the right thing in prison. Like if you have a drug problem or some other issue, you work on that. You get vocational training. You get educational training, that type of thing. You'll get earned time credits to reduce your sentence. So the whole idea is if you're in prison, if we've put someone in prison, hopefully they're going to come out a better person than they went in. That should be the goal. But that's… That's not, that's r- it's very rare now. Now, but it, that's changing, too. Last piece on the bill that that's good is juvenile justice reform, uh, which is something Senator Booker pushed for. And we've been working with Senator Booker. I think he's phenomenal, by the way. And it basically will provide for no more, uh, very limited circumstances for juvenile, solitary confinement, and also expungement and uh, sealing of juvenile records, which will be a good start. But to your point... Yeah, the, the recidivism rates nationally, it's what, 50 60 percent within two years. That's why we need to do more. And the, the good news here is this Senate bill, it, it really shouldn't even be con- controversial, in my opinion, because since 2008 or so, 2005, around that time period, 30 states have enacted criminal justice reform. And every one of them has seen a drop in crime, a drop in incarceration rates. And a drop in spending,
1: and presumably some of these states, or all of them, uh, have enacted uh, drug diversion programs yes. and programs that give people treatment rather than then prison. prison,
0: right? And that, but so the the point is, and these are a lot of them are deep red states, so it's it shouldn't be that controversial. It's a good start, I think. The, and and uh, you know, usually the states fall, the feds lead on this, but now the the federal government's falling the states. So l-
1: l- let me ask you this: um, you talk about the need for better schools, you talk about yeah. the need. Uh, for jobs. Earlier, you talked about Pell grants. Um, and these imply, you know, at some level, at least government participation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, so I go back again, and I know you're not here as a representative, as you say, of the political arm. Mm-hmm. But uh, all this resides in uh, under the heading of, of, of Coke. Uh, so do, are you at war with yourself a little bit here? Because it's the sense is that uh, the political arm is pushing for uh, less and less and less uh, uh, government. And some of this requires government.
0: Yeah, I don't know if we're at war with ourselves. And we, we try to think of ourselves as nonpolitical in a sense. If I'm, you are, I'll,
1: I'll get on your side. Yeah, that's great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that'll help you over there. But. Uh,
0: but here's the deal. Here's the deal. I mean, we you have to play in politics in this country if you want to get anything done. We're more about ideas. Charles, in particular, is about ideas, free society. And at the core of this issue is about freedom, liberty, opportunity, et cetera, prosperity for individuals. And we think that there's so much money wasted, I think we can all agree on that, in our federal government in a lot of different ways. And so to the extent you can shrink the size of this one government program, i.e. incarceration in the criminal justice system, that will free up resources for other things. But
1: even if that were the case, aren't there transitional costs in sure. terms I mean, of uh, in terms of these uh, programs to fight recidivism and, and and drug addiction? And
0: yeah, there are. I mean, I think that there's a lot of social services out there already. There's a lot of uh, nonprofit groups working on it. There's a lot of community-based organizations that work on it. And I think that should continue. I do think. Look, there's a reason why when they, when, when this, this this country started, whenever it was, 1790 or so, there were three federal crimes enumerated in the constitution uh, treason counterfeiting and piracy and everything else was left to the states and now if you look at the the drug wars the reality is if you believe in federalism if you believe in a limited federal government and having the states have more power the local level let them make the decisions really the federal drug program is the most egregious example of over you know overfederalization you have too many drug law- laws that are duplicative and, and lead to all these outcomes. So I think that if we start shrinking the size of our criminal justice system and the number of laws out there, again, there's 5,000 federal criminal laws right now we think. We don't know. That'll help with this. But to your point, at the end of the day, all these things are going to take more than the government. The government can't do this. Right. The government can release some totally of these constraints, and it's going to be up to the communities. It's going to be up to private employers like Coke. We've banned the box. We hope other companies do. It's going to take all of us. This gets back to the proximity thing. Um, and, and you have to, people, let me just put it this way. I think that if most people knew what was going on in our criminal justice system, the types of people who are getting sent away and the, and, and just the abject poverty and, and, and just what a devastating, devastating consequences it's had in this society. We're too isolated as a society. And, and I think it's based on class more than anything else. But if people understood it, I think they'd open their hearts and minds. I know in Wichita, Kansas, people i have talked to many, many different groups about these issues now, and there's a powerful, powerful sense of redemption in all communities, left, right, and everything else. So yeah, the government needs to do a certain thing to loosen some of the constraints. But then I think that'll hopefully free up resources that we can direct towards helping people really get treatment, help, that type of thing, and all these other problems could be dealt with. But it must start. With shrinking the size, I of just the government. you
1: know this is. I, uh, I think that uh, when it comes to things like education, yep. when it comes to things like uh, affording those uh, opportunities or, or treatment programs, and so on, those are it's it's very hard to do that without without government. And so I not disagree. I'm I'm not one who believes that. I think one of the things I can speak. Uh, <clears throat> more convincingly in critiquing the left than you than you probably can, you know, we fall in love with um, means instead of ends, and, and we ought to be much more open to critiquing whether things are working or not working. Right. Some things plainly aren't working, but... That doesn't mean that we should give up trying to find solutions that do, and some of them are going to involve the expenditure of well, money. I'm, some of them are going to find, uh, involve government. So I, I, you I'm, know. Not,
0: I'm not disagreeing with you. I was well, that's criminal, no fun. Well, well I was <laughs> going to say the criminal justice system is a place where we need to really reduce the size of government and the overreach. I think education, yeah, that, that's something the government should be involved in, but I don't know it makes sense for a central government to dictate back to the states. What saying, well, The vast saying,
1: majority and, of education money is spent by the states and local communities. Right
0: and so th- what I'm saying is oh, a lot of these different programs there will be government funding but I think that for the reentry issues that type of thing and then keeping kids out of the system to begin with there can be private public partnerships there are a lot of nonprofits that I know in Wichita Kansas that do a lot of work like that. It's going to be all of us being involved. I mean that that is why this issue when people get educated on it pretty much everybody agrees they're shocked at some of the sentences, they're shocked at some of the outcomes, they're shocked at the amount of money we're spending. It's shocking all around in this country. Someone gets fifty-five years in prison for selling marijuana as a first-time offender. That happened. We're trying to. That's going to be fixed in this new bill, the Senate bill. If it gets through, it's going to change that outcome and hopefully be retroactive. So people like Weldon Angelos will be able to see his kids again before he dies. And there is a lot. Explain of, who he is. Oh, I am sorry. Weldon Angelos is a, was a first-time offender. He sold marijuana three separate times to an undercover informant. They found an illegal gun on him. He was prosecuted uh, because of a mandatory minimum sentence that the judge could not deviate from. He got 55 years in prison. No one died. No one was shot three times under $1,000 worth of marijuana. And the reason was, there's this going to get a little inside baseball here, but 924C, a gun stacking. It just did. Mandatory minimum (laughs) for gun violence, Uh for gun crimes, a recidivist statute that says if you have an illegal gun when you commit a federal crime, you get a five-year mandatory minimum. Then you get out of prison, the next time you do it again, 25, and if you ever do it again, 25. Well, they charged it all as one, he got all three sentences within one one case, which wasn't intended by the statute, but it was interpreted that way, and the prosecutor had the discretion, the judge didn't. The judge was a George W. Bush appointee named Cassell. He's now resigned from the bench, retired from the bench. At sentencing, he said, this is outrageous, it's unfair, it's cruel. If he was a terrorist as a first-time offender, let's say he hijacked a plane, he would have got 24 years maximum. If he had killed someone, manslaughter on federal Indian lands, he would have got 10 years maximum. If he had raped a 10-year-old child, he would have got 11 years maximum, which would have been less, all those three combined, less than the 55 years he got. And so that's going to be changed as well. There's a lot of people in prison because of these, these statutes that are vaguely interpreted, and it all goes in favor of the prosecutor. So that'll get fixed as well. And going forward, people who commit crimes with guns, they should be held accountable, for sure, no doubt. But I don't know that they need 55 years in prison for selling marijuana where no one got shot or hurt. I would uh, be—I want to talk to you—I mean, people will say,
1: here's a fellow from Coke Industries sitting down with with me, and um, we should sort of get our arms around that and the the sort of image that— that uh, the Kochs have because of their political activities and the notion that they're extraordinarily powerful in our Mm -hmm. politics right now, spending an awful lot of money. And I know you said, and and I'm sure that that that's a powerful motivation, that uh, a lot of that is is a matter of principle and philosophy. Yeah. But they're also like, you represent a huge industry in, in energy and manufacturing, mm-hmm. uh, lots of regulatory issues. Um, and the question becomes, you know, since we're talking about the founding fathers, did they anticipate uh, m- you know, massive spending by, uh, by interests uh, on issues that are impactful on their own bottom line?
0: I, you know, it, that's a question we could debate. I guess for sure, I think it's a First Amendment issue. And, and first, let me just be clear: a lot of it, particularly Charles's money, goes to education and and other things besides but, politics. No, and I understand, and I understand. No, but that I, David's philanthropy yeah, in New York it, 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 is it, it, very let, visible. Let's, just, there, let's so. talk about this because you you obviously are much more knowledgeable for sure on history and politics and everything else. Well, I think but, I'm about to
1: get fleeced here. No, you're not. You're not <laughs> I even, no, no.
0: Seriously, I wasn't just saying that to you know, fill your boots up or whatever they say in the Midwest. But, uh, <laughs> I, I would, but my point is, you know, going back to the beginning, politics has always been really nasty and really expensive, in my opinion, from what I've read and understood. And I think that what we've seen over time is there's always been a ton of money in politics. It really has on both sides, depending on who's giving it. Now, Citizens United, that is seen as some watershed event. And I, I get why that is said. But at its core, we know what that case is about which is that there was a video put out by this group called Citizens United that was critical of then-candidate Hillary Clinton in 2008. And because of the McCain-Feingold uh, campaign finance law, you could not have a video out within 60 days or 30 days of you know, the general election or primary election. And so they were prohibited from putting that video out on direct for video, direct for whatever it is. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, they, they sued, saying, we have a First Amendment right to do this. The lower court said... No, no, you don't. And In fact, it could be criminal under McCain-Feingold. That went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, five to four, ruled that that law is unconstitutional. You can't censor that. That's core political speech. And I think that that, that was the holding of that case. It gets conflated and misrepresented, in my opinion. But corporations have free speech rights, First Amendment rights. I could not have been out doing what I've done the last eight, nine months now, 10 months this year talking about in my capacity as Coke Industries, meeting with legislators, the only time I've ever lobbied in my life has been this year on criminal justice reform. That's First Amendment activity. So we have those rights. I think that what is lost really at the end of the day is that money has been seen as speech in our political process for a long time, going back at least to Buckley versus Vallejo, where William Brennan, who was no conservative, um, was in the majority on that case. And so that's what we're talking about. Money is... Is speech and there's also anonymous speech is recognized by the First Amendment. So I see it as all consistent and part of what's been going on in this country for a long time.
1: I'm not as uh, I'm not as fluent in history as you suggest or as I should be, but I do remember a period in our country in the late eight, uh, 19th century when there was a it was another period of tremendous uh, change, uh, industrial revolution. Uh, uh, great aggregations of of wealth: J.P. Morgan, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, and so on. Uh, all of whom did philanthropic things and and, and good things, but also marshaled their power very much on behalf of their industries. And Teddy Roosevelt came along. The the law that the court, the some of some of law that was has been set aside are, are laws that uh, Roosevelt put in place against corporate participation in. Uh, in our politics, because of a concern that uh, the, the the voices of everyday people were were being crowded out, mm-hmm. um, so this has been a long-standing concern. Isn't it a legitimate concern? If I know we all have the right to exercise uh, uh, free speech, but you know the uh, Joe Smith down the block here, who has the same right to exercise free speech as Charles Koch, is not going to be entertaining the entire array of Republican candidates at his apartment tonight uh, because they don't need him. They need the money that a Charles Koch can provide, and uh, that's a concern, is it not?
0: Well, I don't think, going back to what I said earlier, I think this has been the case on both sides for a long time. That there are, is it good? I, yeah, I think it's the I mean, First Amendment. You're, I think-
1: you're, you're an advocate for, and and I'm really... I I'm a, I appreciate what you're doing. I think it's really important. You you're an advocate for people who've gotten uh, the short end of the stick, and you said earlier, and I agree with you that it's largely because they were poor and yep. they were disadvantaged. They didn't have. You said, you know, people with means generally don't have to deal with the things that
0: these uh, people do, and well, they can deal with it better, is what it is. Right, but in but
1: but then then uh, if we. Uh, have a political system where um, people with uh, great resources have the loudest say, doesn't that sort of crowd out the concerns of of these people who you're fighting so desperately for?
0: No, I don't think so. We're f- I think our point of view is, again, both sides do it, and everybody has a right to— to free speech. Our, we have grassroots groups like Americans for Prosperity. They get branded certain ways or targeted certain ways. Tim Phillips has ways. been here, by the way. Tim, he runs I know. I, Americans he, for Prosperity. Tim, and he, and you know, he, I, I look as a as a
1: political sure. operative. Sure. Uh, I, I have to say, I'm in awe of the organizing that Americans for, oh. for Prosperity has done. I think that it's been an incredible force see, in our politics. See, I,
0: I see this. I see that the the way that. Some want to set up the campaign finance system. Is really going to be ultimately the Incumbent Protection Act forever. It's like the Udall Amendment last year, where they tried to um, amend the Constitution to limit the ability for certain activities to happen during electoral season. I don't think we should do that. I hear what you're saying. You know, there, there's all this concern about we have an outsized voice, we have this, we have that. Well, I, you know. well I, I I guess I disagree. We we, we do certain things. I'll trade made. places with you. Yeah, well, <laughs> whatever. I mean, I don't know if I – I wouldn't want to trade places with anybody. But <laughs> well, all I'm saying is that the things we believe in, if we were as powerful – As you say, and as persuasive as you say, and had this control, then why, when the extenders bill last year, thirty, we had like thirty people who we supported, uh, voted against that because it was a lot of pork and a lot of cronyism. Most everybody still does the same thing. We don't have that kind of power. I'm not saying we don't have any. I think that most politicians are going to do their own thing. And at the end of the day, we try to be engaged in the political process so we can get the ideas we think are important passed through and implemented to the extent there's will for it the political will that the elected officials have to have but the things that we care about you know like overspending cronyism um The uh, criminal justice system reform issues, there's a common thread. It's about individual liberty and freedom and letting individuals decide what to do with their own money, their own neighborhoods, their own lives, and less government intrusion. Government is way too intrusive, way too overreaching. So that's what we use our voice for. Now, is that good, bad, or indifferent? I don't know. I think throughout history, there's been a lot of different people have different views. And the thing I love about our country is you get to say it. You don't have to like it. But the cure for speech you either don't like or don't agree with is more speech. It's not less speech. And I think that common people do have a voice. I know the Democracy Alliance has about 182 groups, which is the counterpart yeah. to what we do. They're,
1: they're not common people either.
0: They're not common people either, but they have a lot of groups they support that are, like moveon.org. That is that common people? Yeah. I don't know. I guess what I'm saying, David, is both sides do it. Both We maybe both complain about it. But I think it's overall, it's positive to have as many viewpoints and voices out there. And there are a lot of points of views. And while we get every, you know, I get enough Google alerts, I see what we get blamed for. It's the Ben Franklin thing, believe none of what you hear and half of what you see. And I think that we should be encouraging more voices, more people out there, um, regardless of what it is and not less. And we play a role in that. And a lot of other people and individuals do as well. And I think that's a healthy thing for our country.
1: I I think you're unduly modest. But, I, uh, but let me ask you this. If you were—what um, are the things—getting back to your friends back in Worcester yeah. and, and their counterparts today, and God knows we know these problems in Chicago, they're very profound. It's awful. Uh, What are the things that we should be doing beyond criminal justice reform? And I, I know you said jobs
0: and education, but how do we get there? I think— what we need to do, I mean, I, part of it is you can't legislate it. I mean, every child should be loved and every child is special. Right. Um, you can't do that. And that, that's not a rich or poor thing because there's messes on every side of that or, or failures. I think, though, if you look at what some of the programs that have worked really well in the juvenile justice system, particularly one in Missouri, it basically is a situation where they're trying to now replicate what should have happened in the home. I mean, what should have happened when they were kids? everyone wants to succeed, everyone wants to be loved, everyone wants to be accepted. If we could do that, if we could legislate that that'd be great we can 't so after that we 're trying to play catch up through whatever either the community or social right. services I, you know what i'd tell i, I don 't know what to say you know I grew up in Worcester Mass, which was a great place. I grew up at a time when you know I went to the University of Massachusetts and You know, I did. my my parents told me if I worked hard, followed the rules, did the right thing, went to school, did all that stuff, went to Mass every day, I could be successful in this country. I'd like to think that's still the case. I know it's—I have no way to understand what people in the South Side or people in Wichita, poor people that I grew up with in Worcester, wherever it is, what they deal with on a daily basis if you're a kid around that— it's it's devastating. Yeah. So I wish it could be corrected, but I think at the end of the day, what we need to do as a society is not be so stratified. We need to be more open. We need to be more forgiving. We need to be less judgy, particularly of people who have had problems and fallen down. We need to help pick them up because it goes back to Brian Stevenson, one of his best, one of my favorite quotes he has is, "Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done." And I got to tell you, and I'm not just saying this. I said at the beginning we're kind of coming near the end, maybe, but when I think back now, what the things I did and what I could have ended up, what could have happened, particularly these days with social media and everything else, I'm a very lucky person. And I think everybody in this country needs to realize that, that they could be very much on the other side of things, yeah. victims of circumstances. So open up their hearts and minds. Yeah, I'm the,
1: I'm the son of an immigrant. And so I've experienced the greatness of this country because my father came here with nothing. And I ended up as the senior advisor to the president of the United States. I've had wonderful opportunities. But uh, I'm really, because I do love this country, and I believe in this notion that if you work hard in America, you ought to be able to get ahead. It worries me that uh, that is not true for so many people.
0: I I think that it's more difficult for some people. I I, I do think that some of the things we've been talking about from the federal government perspective, like the criminal justice system being reformed would be great. I think we should, one of our Charles's other key elements would save trillions of dollars is ending all Corporate welfare, getting rid of every bit of it, subsidies, tax credits, everything else. Start to free up money that way. Start to have people believe more in the system. I mean, it's a two, we have a two-tier system. We have a two-tier society. I mean, you heard Elizabeth Warren say that? We think that too, but we disagree on why we You guys we are have always it. agreeing. Yeah, thing. exactly, mm-hmm. right. Uh, well, she is from Massachusetts. Um, <laughs> but no, it's a two-tier society. We just disagree on what caused it and what the fix is. But I think we need to address that, and I think part of that is what we're talking about here today. Well,
1: let let me just say this, and this may be a good place uh, uh, to end. I thoroughly agree with you. I think the biggest problem we have right now as a country is we need to agree on what the challenges are. And you may have a different idea about what the solutions are, but we ought to have a good-faith discussion about what those challenges are and how we deal with them. These kids who, through no fault of their own, are so uh, challenged, yep. uh, they do need, I, I agree with you, they, they need our compassion and they need our help so that they can realize their potential. And that's better for society. Uh, I may have a different idea about how we achieve that than you, but let us agree that that is a worthy goal.
0: I totally agree. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm in no way am I uh, ever be confused with an optimist, but this has given <laughs> me some hope working with people who we haven't been able to work with That, you know, maybe, maybe we're not all, I don't think you're evil, I didn't think that to begin with. A lot of people have thought we are. We're not. Maybe you now understand we have some ideas that are good. Let's find more good things to work on. I mean, I I remember growing up, and it was a different age, obviously, but, you know, Teddy Kennedy and uh, and Orrin Hatch were like best buddies, right? And they got stuff done, Tip O'Neill and Reagan, you hear all this stuff. All I'm saying is we are so focused in this country, it's so partisan, we're all in our corners all the time, and it's, we're always talking at each other, we're tweeting this, we're tweeting that, we want to win the moment, the soundbite, whatever it is. Let's sit down and find things we agree on, but I don't think our current system set up that way for whatever reason. So I'm hopeful that if we have some success in a bipartisan way on an issue that has is, is been as difficult as criminal justice in our country. I mean, no one ever lost an election being tough on crime. But now we're looking both sides saying, let's rethink this. Let's be smarter on crime. And that's what's happening. Maybe this will give us the, the ability to work on other issues together. I, I, I worry, though, that we are so two-year, four-year, whatever, six-year motivated, and it's all about going back to my district and talking to people who already agree with me so I can raise no, more I money think, and get more power. I think
1: this is a problem... Not just in government, but business. We've become a short-term society, and we manage the quarterly reports not and we called, govern we're, we're to we govern view. to we're the private. next election. No, I understand. <laughs> I understand. I understand. I, I, the, I'm giving I'm I'm giving you uh, a, a a hall pass I on this one. I'm not that. talking of, but uh, but I think the ability to make long-term decisions. For one last question on the yes, criminal sir. justice system, uh, the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, it's been interesting because in states like Nebraska, there's been a heated debate, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not, been, and it's been a bipartisan kind of uh, issue where people have said, you know, maybe this isn't the way to go, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I became concerned about this in our own state in 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 the late 90s and 2000s when early 2000s when we found these 13 people on death row who through dna evidence were found not to be it seems like an irreversible you know it seems like it is it's irreversible mm. uh should we should we dispense, we're not only the most incarcerating country in the world, we're also, you know, we, 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 we still hang on to the death penalty. Many countries don't. Should we dispense with the death penalty as, an, as, as one of the tools?
0: I, I worry about the death penalty for sure. I mean, it, it personally, I'm not a fan of it. I think that it, we're starting to see a change in this country. I think that it's going to have to be state by state. I think that at the same time, again, going back to the Bill of Rights, some read the Eighth Amendment is allowing for it, and it did. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, just what you pointed out about the error in our criminal justice system, just it's fraught with error. They think they're 10%, at least, of the people incarcerated are innocent. That would give me great concerns. And I think the data shows that it actually is more expensive to put someone to death than it is for life imprisonment. Thoroughly. At the same time, you understand viscerally and emotionally when you see some of these awful crimes um, why people react that way, but I I, I do. think that I think the discussion is going on now, and I hope it continues. And you know, at the end of the day, I really believe that a lot of people in this country, most people in this country, all people in this country, want to do the right thing and will get to the right place when they're faced with the right facts and the right arguments. So we'll see how that plays out. Well, Mark, I, I uh, appreciate
1: your passion on this issue. of of criminal justice reform, as I do your passion for the Celtics, the Patriots, the Boston Red Sox. As a devout Chicago sports fan, I, I can appreciate a guy who keeps his, uh, his loyalty. So yeah. uh, you're probably the best Patriots fan in Wichita.
0: Uh, yeah, that's like the tall of the Mickey Rooney contest, <laughs> one, but I'll take it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit
1: politics.uchicago.edu.